You're listening to The Slam, a national club golfer podcast. Steve Brotherhood has been a European Tour caddy since 2004, working with the likes of Paul Broadhurst, Mark Warren, Richie Ramsey, and most notably, eight years with David Howell. With the news that rangefinders will be allowed at some professional events in 2021, including the PGA Championship, Steve came on the NCG podcast to offer a caddy's perspective. That then turned into a wide-ranging discussion about Steve's career that included a fascinating insight into how the trend of players putting friends on the bag affected professional caddies. There's also prank texts from Hugh Grant and his thoughts on that Matt Kuchar incident in Mexico. Also, did he apply for the Rory McIlroy job when that became available? And how do you even apply for a job as a caddy? Sit back and enjoy the tales of a seasoned bagman who has seen it all on the European tour. Steve, thank you for joining me on the NCG podcast. Always a pleasure to, to chat with you. Um, look, I want to talk about your career as a European Tour caddy in a bit, but before that, um, I want to get your take on what is pretty big news in terms of your profession in, in that range finders will be allowed at PGA of America events, and that includes the PGA Championship, of course. So when you first saw the news, what was your immediate reaction? That it was pretty much a waste of time because no one will use them anyway. We've had a good discussion over the last couple of weeks since it got launched, you know, in the caddy ranks and stuff. When we've been out in Saudi last week, we all uh, we all had a few days extra in Saudi um, due to the 10 day quarantine back at home. If we stayed in Saudi for the 10 days outside of Dubai, um, that we have this exemption letter, which doesn't um, affect us. So we don't have to quarantine for 10 days. So. We had quite a nice apartment block um, and a, a little bit of a beach area that we, you know, about 10, 15 caddies sat around every day for the last few days. And this topic got brought up a couple of times. And do you know what? The, our job is made very, very easy. Uh, and this is a hard thing to say because you don't want to put your job down and, you know, because we do still work very hard. But the yardage books that we have, there's so much detail in these yardage books now with numbers, with waste areas, with bunkers, with, you know, pretty much everything. Um, we have pictures off the tee there. So it tells you how far it is to a bunker, how far it is over a bunker. Now in golf at the moment, and it has been for the last sort of 12 months, slow play is a big, big issue. And bringing a laser into play after using this as well, is just going to slow play up. And, We've got all the information we need. We, we will walk on Monday and Tuesday and a Wednesday around the course. We might even do three rounds um, and we get our notes. So we know going into Thursday morning or Thursday afternoon, whenever you're teeing off, that we will have a good idea of all the numbers, what we need to, where the wind direction is going to be for the week, uh, where not to and where the best place to miss it is, et cetera, et cetera. So these things, I mean, I, I swear by the Bushnell laser. Uh, I've got the new one, the V5, and it's, you know, I've had it for 16 seasons on the European tour. Never let me down. This is a great bit of kit to have in a practice round, but you won't see me using it on the golf course, that's for sure. So I think it's fair to say you are saying they will not speed up play. Definitely not. If, do you envisage any situation, if you're caddying in an, in an event where they are allowed, if that ever yeah. happens in the future, do you see a situation where you would actually use it in tournament play? The only time I think I'd actually use it is if my players hit it miles offline, maybe onto another fairway, you know, whatever, and we can't get a good angle to to pace off the, you know, the yardage from the spots or the crosses that are, that are in the yardage book. That would be the only, only time. I think, if you ask 99% of the caddies, they'd agree with me because this is a chat we had. And I think that's the, the only time it'll come in play. But if you imagine you're lasering to a flag and then your player says, well, what is it to the front of the green? Straight away, I've got to go back to my book, see how far the flag's on. So I've got to then take that off the yardage that I've just zoomed. Then he might say, what is it to the back of the green? Then I've got to look in my yardage book again, see how far past the flag I've got. 
then he might say, what is the cover on the left bunker? Then I've got to go back to my yardage book again to see how far up the green the left bunker is. All that information is in my yardage book. So this, I'm, and, and you ain't going to get the um, the flag every time. So it might take me three or four attempts to actually get it properly and zoom in and get the right number. And then I've got to refer back to the book anyway to take the numbers or add the numbers on. So it's all the yardage books are brilliant there's a guy called Dion Stevens who's been out on the tour as long as I have and he works his nuts off he does a brilliant job and again like I say these books make our job so much easier but we do add our notes into it on the Monday Tuesday Wednesday and by the time Thursday comes if you haven't got a number from wherever you're going to hit it you you know you you've been pretty pretty lazy really I think personally I think I think the biggest take for me there um as a hacker who uses a rangefinder, that it's, I mean, obviously you have these situations on, say, maybe like a misty day or a cloudy day. And it, it, like you mentioned there, it's really hard to pick up the flag sometimes. Yeah. The technology is, they obviously can't affect the weather. And it really is. I mean, I had a situation when we were allowed to play uh, a few months ago where I've, I've zapped the clubhouse behind the 18th green. I've, I've waited four hours to hit a sweet approach all day, and then I've seen my ball bouncing around on the patio because I've actually... It's, so, uh, yeah, so yeah. it's, really, it's really comforting to know that you know, professional caddies have that, have that difficulty. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I would say is, uh, and this is no dis- with disrespect to the amateurs or the, you know, the mini tours, they don't require as much information as what a European tour player with. That's, that's fact. Um, so there was one comment uh, after my tweet a few a couple of weeks ago saying, well, it's speedy play up in the mini tour event. Well, that's great because, you know, the mini tour events are, are not playing golf courses like we play. Um, they haven't got a caddy to advise them on where they should be doing stuff and et cetera, et cetera. So they're basically lasering the flag. They'll have an idea where the pin is and they'll just play to a spot on the green. Unless they have a professional caddy on the bag, then it would be different, I think, because the caddy would be giving them more information. But um, they only require a certain amount of information, and that's why the lasers come in, and it's great for them. But on the professional circuit, with two of you in your team, the caddy and the player, and you're playing in a three ball, that's six of you in uh, in the round, and the caddy might be using the bush, or the player might be uh, using the Irish book, they might come up with a different number then you're confusing yourself straight away. So you say, well, which one's right? Is the Bushnell right? Is the book right? Am I, am I, like you said, am I lasering the flag or have I got a tree behind it? Um, so for me, it's just, it's going to confuse things a little bit and it's going to slow slow down the play. And uh, that's the uh, that's the talk of the caddies for, for sure. You know, they, they I don't think, I mean, we always keep them in our bag anyway because we use them on the ranges and stuff and in practice rounds, but it'll be, I think it'll be, once or twice around that he has to come out if if any i mean the pga tour trialed it on the on ferry or whatever it was called a few years ago um with with the differing results really and they decided that it wasn't going to be happening on the on the main tour is as it has there ever been any talk that you know of of this happening on the european tour no absolutely not i mean there, there's always there's always rumors around that you know it's the same as anything in when new technology comes out, you know, are they going to allow us to do this? I mean, the uh, big talk is the green books, uh, you know, everyone I talk to wants to ban them, but at the minute they're still going, you know, they, um, it takes the, the art out of putting, if you, if you ask me, you know, the back in the day when you're watching the great Seve and Jack Nicholas and all them, and they getting down, having a look and reading the puts and rolling them in. Now you've got a bit of paper that tells you how to do that. As long as you get the pace right uh, and, the, you know, and the, the line that it tells you, which, you know, it pretty much tells you what the pace of the line is. So, so for someone that struggles with green reading, that's given them a massive advantage. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't think that's, I don't think they, I mean, this is just my opinion again. I don't think the green books will be around for much longer, but I certainly don't think if they do introduce lasers, I don't think they'll be used because there's no way in the world they'll get rid of the yardage books. The players and the caddies won't won't allow that anyway. So, um, so it might just be an extra bit of kit to have in your armory in the golf bag. But um, yeah, the the yardage book will be the main main thing to use when we're out there. You spoke briefly there about um, being inside the COVID bubble, as it were. Um, as we speak, it's what February 2021. Uh, just. Yeah. To- podcast um we're now several months into that european tour covid bubble which we're all hearing such good things about um 
Uh, my colleague of mine, Steve Carroll, chatted to Steve Gallagher uh, recently about what it's like to be a player inside the bubble. So what, what's it like for a caddy? Presumably you're going through all the same strict procedures from... from- Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, the first sort of six months of coming back into it, um, I found it quite easy. You know, it, it we were told what to do, where to go, where to stay. Um you know, we had the tests. I mean, we our, our Monday or Tuesday, whenever we get to the tournament, we're basically straight to the testing centre. So we have to do a PCR test, um, cotton bud down the throat, up the nose, and it is pretty horrible. Um, I, 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 I'm terrible at it. It's the down the throat, I'm bringing stuff up all the time. It's, it's just not a nice feeling. And I feel sorry for the young girls that are testing me as well. Um, but, you know, um, we do that and then we have four hour time um to get the results so as long as obviously you test negative which is what everyone does really um you know then we're allowed to go to our hotel but we have to stay in what's called a buddy bubble so um basically if your player has decided to room with another player then the only person i could possibly room with them would be the other player's caddy now if you if you don't sort of get well not, not, not get on is the wrong word if you don't sort of hang around with that caddy so much it's pretty awkward when you've got a guy that you've roomed with for five or six years and you can't room with him so that's that's hard to take um so you know all all of last year i've been pretty much doing single rooms really because i haven't been allowed to go into uh this buddy bubble with the lad i usually room with um so that was that was difficult uh but you know, the European Tour, I heard a, a stat last week, the European Tour have done 22,000 tests since we come back and only seven have had a positive result. So, you know, hand, hats off to them. They've done an unbelievable job in keeping us safe, doing the right measures, you know, and, and also the players, the caddies and the staff, you know, doing as they're told, really, because you've only got to get a couple of couple of lads not doing as they're told and, you know, one gets it, then another gets it and, you know, and so on and so forth. So, it's very tough. I found it. I found it harder these first few weeks going out. I've been in. Uh, we went to Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Saudi. So I was out for just over four weeks, really. And obviously, Dubai is a, a lovely place to go. Sunshine, uh, nice restaurants. So it was to to be told that you're not allowed to go out and and have a bite to eat in one of your favourite restaurants. To stay that you have to stay. To say you have to stay in a 180 pound hotel for the week um, is something that we don't really want to do because we try and obviously keep our costs down to a minimum. Um, but we have had out, out from our players in paying for those. So it's not, it's not all, oh, you know, you've been chucked in the deep end and you've got to pay for everything. So, so the players have helped us out there. Um, but yeah, it's just strange times. Masks are on every time you get up um, you and walk around, you've got to wear your mask, obviously. And then, Going from one tournament to another, again, you leave the tournament on a Sunday and on that Monday or Tuesday when you get to the next tournament, COVID test again, wait four hours, wait for your results, hope, hope you, you test uh, negative. I had a bit of an incident, actually, <laughs> in, uh, in Dubai. So I, um, we finished the tournament in Abu Dhabi uh, and missed the cup. So we then travelled to, back to Dubai and I stay in a hotel in Dubai for three days because Dave uh, Howell, who I was caddying for the time, um, was third or fourth reserve to get into Dubai. So we were sort of not really planning on playing that week because um, it's very rare that someone would pull out at a tournament when they're doing like a back-to-back two weeks in. Uh, third or fourth reserve, whatever we were, we were just sort of thinking, well, we'll stay in Dubai for the week, go and do a bit of practice together and then on to Saudi after that anyway on the um so on the Sunday sorry on the Saturday evening Dave gets a call to say oh you you're in the event you've got an invite so brilliant you know that all of a sudden we've gone from being reserved to actually getting in the tournament so I went to the Covid centre in Dubai which is in a mall queued up uh, for three hours basically had my test get back the next morning wake up to a text message uh your result is presumptive positive now i'm like what on earth does that mean what does presumptive positive mean you know it wasn't like oh you're positive you've got covid you are 
So anyway, I phoned uh, Dr. Andrew Murray, who's the uh, the main guy on the European tour. Who again, he's doing a, an unbelievable job. He's uh, you know his workload is uh, is unbelievable. You know, dealing with five hundred players and caddies and staff every week. Um, so he said, "Well, I'm not really." Sh-. He wasn't really sure at the time what it was, but he did some research and said, "It sounds like there's they've picked up on an antibody in your system, um, but it doesn't seem like it's a, a one that will spread. You need to isolate in your room for three days." have another test, uh, which then would have took us to the Monday. If um, if then your test comes back negative, then then you're allowed to travel to Abu Dhabi, um, have another test in Abu Dhabi, and if that comes back negative, then you can do the tournament. So I'm like, right. So I'd sit for um, three days in my hotel room, just having Deliveroo uh, being delivered for food. Couldn't leave. I was opening the curtains every morning, overlooking the pool, and it was 30 degrees. And I wasn't allowed to go out. It was like, oh my god, this is killing me. Yeah. Um, but you know, I did it, and um, and then got my got my test on the Saturday. Come back negative. Uh, sorry, on the Sunday. Uh, on the Monday, travelled to uh, Abu Dhabi. Come back negative again, and there was Tuesday morning carrying again. So took the right precautions. Got two negatives, and um, that one was probably a, a, a you know a, a miss miss test. As they call it, so. Um, but that's you know that's how it is. One of the one of the caddies coming back from um, from Saudi tested positive. Um, had to wait a day. Did two more tests straight after. Both come back back negative. So it's there's. I think you've got to be really careful because when you first get the positive result, you think, oh god, I'm now here for two weeks. I've got a quarantine. Not allowed to leave my room. This is going to be a nightmare. Again. Yeah, but then like two days later you do another test and it comes back negative the next day it's negative then you know you're okay so but there has been there has been lads out on tour uh, Andy Beef Johnson his caddy his manager pitched up he'd been in his close contact with him uh, his manager tested positive so that means his caddy and Andy Johnson had to room for 10 days in Abu Dhabi um, he, he, they never tested positive they were both negative but because of being in close contact they have to stay in 10 days quarantine which they had to do so but yeah, the tour have got it. The tour have got it absolutely perfectly right, and that's why we've still got tournaments going. Yeah, I was going to say it's been a huge operation, hasn't it? Yeah, amazing. I mean, the the COVID team, the staff, and everything they they you know they've done an unbelievable job, and you know all we've had to do really is abide by the laws that they've set down, and that's what we've been doing, and that's why we've been able to go to work every week. You know, brilliant. Right, let's talk about your career a bit because I know you've got some incredible stories to tell. So let's go back sort of 15, 20 years and, and start at the beginning. So, well, actually, let's go back even further than that. How did you get into golf? Presumably, as a youngster, you wanted to be a player. Yeah, so um, I picked a golf club up at about four years old in the back garden with my dad. Dad was a, a very keen golfer, a member at my local course. Um, and, you know, I, I, I could hit it. You know, it, I, I was a four-year-old kid and I had a couple of swoops and I could hit it. And all the way up until 10 years old, I was really keen and I, I, and I was playing football, which I was useless at. I was always on the pitch, shivering every Sunday morning because I, I couldn't get a game. So I was used, I got two left feet, I was useless at that. But my mates played in the team and I wanted to be a part of it. And then it got up to 10 years old and um, I, I, went on, I went on the golf course for the first time at, at 10 years old. Uh, played a little municipal called Amington. It was only a par 67, but I broke 100 for the first time. Uh, my first ever time on a golf course. So my dad thought, you know, he, he can he can do it, he can play, he can hit, hit, hit the shot. So then it come to, I got to 12 and all the competitions as a junior then at my local golf club was on a, a Sunday. So did I go and freeze on the pitch at football and not get a game or do I go and play golf competitions? So decided to pack the football in and went into golf. And when I got to 15, I was down to scratch um did really well as a, an amateur kid played county in england and all that kind of jazz and had trials and stuff um and then turned pro at the age of 20 did three years on the euro pro tour kept my card every year but after three years you know that you know i mean my best finish was 21st in the order of merit and you know if you're not competing first second or third in the order of merit on those tours there's no way in the world you're going to compete on the the bigger tours like the challenge and the european tour so um, end of 2004, a good friend of mine, Steve Webster, who was on the tour at the time, asked me to go to Australia um, for over Christmas period and New Year. There was three golf tournaments. As his caddy, he asked, his 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and Caddy said, I've got uh, six, I'm going for six weeks, but I've got three, three tournaments and then we're having a three week, week holiday as well. So do you want to come out? And he, he said, I'll pay all your expenses. And if we do it, okay, uh, you know, we'll, um, we'll write you a check at the end of it. So went out, we, had, we, we made all three cuts, we had a top 10. Um, had an unbelievable three-week holiday over Christmas and New Year in uh, in Sydney. Got home mid-Jan and uh, wrote me a cheque for five grand after me not spending a penny for six weeks in Australia. So I thought, well, this is this is all right. Anyway, that, that was it. Didn't think anything else of it because he never turned around and said, do you fancy coming out full-time or anything like that? So then me and my dad was talking about, uh, you know, carried on on the Euro Pro Tour. And I said, look, you know, this is just a waste of time. You know, I'm not getting any better. Um, he said, yeah, but you just made five grand. You know, you can go and pay, enter a few events. In. And I just, you know, I was sort of half deflated at the time and thought, you know, I don't really want to be doing this anyway. And then just after that, Steve rang my dad and said, look, uh, I know um, bro is playing a bit. Um, I, I was going to ask him if, if he'd want to come out caddying full time on tour with me. But, you know, I wanted to ask my dad's permission first, which was I thought was quite nice, a bit of respect and stuff. And and um, my dad said, well, yeah, if, if Steve wants to do it, you know, let, you know, he's his. So we had a chat and I said, look, you know, just been for a six week amazing time in Australia. And he's just wrote me a check for five thousand quid. You know, I could do all right at this. You know, he's playing well. So I accepted. And then six weeks after starting full time in 2005, he wins the Italian Open. Um <laughs> And, and wrote, wrote me a cheque for 26 grand at the end of the week. And I'm like, what on earth have I been doing for the last three years? I've been slugging, I've been slugging my nuts up, <laughs> trying to hit this little white ball around the field when I could just be carrying the bag and watch someone that can do it properly and just give a little bit of advice and uh, and make quite a substantial amount of money. So, yeah, that's how I, mean, I started. I think if you ask any golfer that tried to make it as a youngster or as a, as a mini tour pro and moving and taking that next step up, I'm sure... The decision to to then quit the game, as it were, is probably quite gut wrenching. But it doesn't really uh, seem like it's, it's, you, or it's, was it? It's difficult because I mean, I spent half my life playing golf, and that was my ambition as a kid. You know, where, what did I want to do? I wanted to be a top professional golfer. Didn't even do my my coaching, which my dad sort of tried to get me into doing my uh, my teaching uh, exams and stuff. But I wasn't interested in doing that. I thought I was going to be the next Tiger Woods. You know how wrong I was. Um, you know, but you know, that's, that was my, that was my vision. That was my focus. And that's all I thought about doing. So, um, yeah, to make that decision to decide to quit was tough, but then it, it felt like a big sort of weight had been lifted off my shoulders as well. Cause there was a lot of pressure in going to play golf to try and make a living. If you played rubbish, you were coming home, spending six, 700 quid a week in expenses and most of it with my dad's money as well. So that was hard because I was, you know, he, he, you know, he had a good job, but he wasn't, you know, it was his savings that he was chipping into all the time. And you know, to tell your dad, your biggest, yeah, to tell your dad your biggest supporter that you you don't want to do it anymore after three years of backing is was an hard conversation to have. But you know, I think he did the right thing, and uh, you know, I'm 16 seasons in now to to being a, a tall caddy. So, well, I was going to say it sort of seems like a a relatively new trend that players have started putting friends on the bag. Obviously the, the most high profile example is, is Rory McIlroy and, and Harry Diamond, but yeah, you're sort of yeah. telling me that's what happened to you 15 years yeah. ago. Yeah, it did. But that mine was a bit of a one-off now. It's more of a regular occurrence. You, um, I mean, I know excellent golf caddies that um, have got a lot more experience than me that can't get a job at the minute. You know, they're sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring, hoping that, one of these players will pick the phone up because lads, are, the young lads are coming through, bringing the the boy, uh, the, the girlfriends through, and the you know the brothers and and all sorts, you know, uh, and and best friends, and then we don't get a look in. Then even though it doesn't matter what sort of background you've got, you don't seem to get a look in. If that's what they've set their mind on doing, is bringing a relative or a friend out, then that's what they do. I have seen it where they start with a friend friend or family but then after 12 months of being out there and getting a bit acclimatized to it then they move to a an experienced caddy but um but yeah that is it is it's a really tough gig to to be in at the minute you know to to, to get a job to get a decent job you know you it's, it's really difficult is there any kind of 
I don't, I don't think resentment's the quite, quite right word, but I'm going to use that word. Is there any resentment from the professional caddies to the to the friend caddies, as it were? I mean, or is it no, sort of, you know, you're part of the caddy community now, big hugs? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I wouldn't say there was a resentment. I think it's, it's disappointing to see that, you know, the, these lads have had a career in the game and they've got multiple wins, they've got Ryder Cups, they've got majors, and now they're sitting at home and can't, get a young lad that's coming through that, you know, they could help and, and you know, and certainly help with their career. Um, but then that is their choice. I mean, I've uh, mentioned in the Rory and the Harry thing, Rory's an example of, is Rory can, Rory could go around with an electric trolley. Rory doesn't really need a caddy, if you like. He's got, he's one of the world's best players. He's, he's very experienced. What a caddy would bring to him um, would be different to, what you would bring to a new rookie, if you like. So I think the the Rory and the, the Harry works because Rory wants that friendly face on the bag. Harry was a, a good friend of his growing up. They've known each other. They can talk about stuff that Rory probably wouldn't want to talk about um, to a caddy that, you know, is just his employee, if you like, where they might be talking about their, their kids or their wives and stuff. And, you know, and that probably helps Rory. And, that, and I think that's why Harry is a, a good catch. And, and, and I hate I hate it because I have to I have to bite my lips sometimes. But seeing all these keyboard warriors on social media saying, "Oh, he needs a proper caddy on the bag because he's done this, he's done that, done the other." At the end of the day, it's a player's final choice. You can only put as much information to that player as you as you can. But if he decides to overrule you, that's his that's his choice. So if if Harry has said to him, "Well, I think it's this club." And Roy doesn't agree with it. it. Doesn't matter if it's Harry or whether it's me or whether it's um, someone that's won a major. He's going to go with that club. So I think the the Rory and the Harry situation is just more of a, a matey thing. Um, but obviously, as Harry's um, been out here a few years, he's 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 picked up the game and he's uh, he's doing a good job as well. So yeah, entering that caddy arena. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about you a few years ago and and someone for like 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 Harry, for example. Um, is coming into this world that he's never been a part of before, and he's yeah. doing, he's caddying for for you know one of the best players that's ever played the game, and you know just look like a you know like a lost sheep when he walked into that. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I remember um, my first year, uh, Webby was um, was struggling with his short game, and he wrote a letter to Severy Severy's management company asking to see if Severy wouldn't mind having a look at his short game. You know, he. he the, the Webby uh, Seve was Webby's idol. Um, you know, he watched videos of him, watched the you know chipping and stuff. And Seve was the best at it, basically. So, uh, you know, half a year into me caddying, I'm on the back of a buggy with Webby's bag on my back, with Webby in the passenger seat, and Seve driving this buggy off to a practice ground chipping green. And I'm like, hang on, six months ago, I was standing, you know, standing, didn't know what to do with my life. You know, thinking, am I going to carry on golf? Am I going to go end up working in a factory or something? What what can I do? And now I'm, I can touch Seve. I'm having a chat with Seve Ballesteros. This is surreal. So we go off to this uh, chipping green and Seve does his stuff and gives Steve a lesson. And it's just the most, I'll never forget it. You know, it's something that I'll take to my grave. The, you know, his, his words, his wisdom, his stories were just fantastic. You know, and from a, a young lad that, you know, wanted to be Savvy Ballesteros in, as a kid and then to be in his company and, you know, and have a chat with him and, and, and to say that, you know, we spent a bit of time with him because over the course of the next sort of 12 months, Steve would play a few practice rounds with Savvy so they could keep an eye on his short game. And it was yeah quite amazing, really. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm really fortunate in that respect. But, yeah, you are like a, like a, a rabbit in the headlights, if you like. You know, you're walking around and there's Thomas Bjorn, there's Adam Scott, there's, you know, uh, Rory McIlroy, there's Justin Rose, and you think, wow, you know, I'm in this arena now. It's it's quite amazing. So, Were there any any experienced caddies you looked up to when you were starting out in the same way that a player might come through and look up to the Rory? Yeah, I, I still look up to him now, to be honest. I mean, Gareth Lord um, played a lot of amateur golf with with Steve and, and I sort of, being Steve's friend, met, met Lordy as a as a young lad and you know Lordy's become an, an unbelievable caddy and he you know he, he was a really good golfer he was a scratch golfer at the time and you know and played uh played for the England team and stuff I think he was in Webby's year or, or close by um 
you know, and then he, he, he came out with Rob Carlson and Henrik Stenson and then he's worked for Rosie and, you know, he's just done brilliantly and, and he'll always be in a, a very good job because he's a very good caddy. So, uh, so yeah, so, yeah, I always remember we sat, sat at the US Open a few years back and um, I've been out and been out on my own on the course for like five or six hours doing, because you always spend a lot more time at the majors because it's a tougher golf course and you have to really sort of get a good grips to, to where you, your player needs to be hitting shots. And he, he asked me to have a look at my yardage book and he went through it and he actually gave me a nice compliment. He said, oh, you've done well there. That's good. I'm really impressed with that. And like for, for Lordy to say that to me, you know, someone that's won multiple times and been a big part of the Ryder Cup and things like that was, well, actually, yeah, that's 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 a nice thing. You know, that mean, means a lot to me because that sort of puts me in there. Well, OK, I'm actually doing my job all right here. So, so yeah, so Gareth Lord would be, uh, would be yeah, someone I'd, I'd probably look up to, yeah. Obviously, it's lovely to hear about the the good times, but, but what about the bad times? Has there been a time when your relationship with a player has, I mean, you're smiling at me, has, has there been a, 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 when your relationship has really broken down beyond repair? I am unemployed at the minute. <laughs> so so basically, um, me and David Howell have been uh, on and off on the golf course for eight years, eight seasons, and we've had some brilliant times. Um, and unfortunately for Dave, he's not been playing well the last sort of 18 months. He struggled. Um, and he, you know, he did admit to that, but he's the most hardworking positive upbeat guy that you know and you want to be on that bag for when it does come back but it's come to a point where I've, I've done the last 18 months with him and you know um I haven't really made any money and nor is he and it's you know it's getting a little bit stale and I could feel myself over the last few weeks not putting as much effort into what I should be doing with him even though he's trying his hardest you know when things not going quite right, the caddy should be there straight on him, but, you know, bigging him up and, and battling him all the way. And, you know, looking back, I don't think I did as good a job as what I could have done there. So it was my decision to, to say, look, you know, I think you need to find someone else and I needed a different challenge. And, and, you know, as a caddy, the only way you're going to get another job or be, be noticed is being off a bag. So, you know, a lot of players have respect for other players, so they wouldn't go headhunting you if you like and say, Do you want to come and work for me, even though they know you're working for someone else? So um that was my decision to be, you know, I know I've got a few weeks off now. So my you know, it's my that was my decision. I've sent an email out to most of the managers that I know, um, saying that, you know, I'm available for work and if any players um looking for a caddy, then to, you know, to let me know. So I'm not worried because you know, over the past 16 seasons, I've only been out of a job for two weeks. So I've, I've actually sort of dropped back into a job quite nicely. Uh, not saying this is going to happen now, because obviously the, with everything that's going on in the world, it it, it might not happen. But um, but I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, I've got a decent enough CV and I'm a likeable lad to to drop into someone else's, uh, you know, team and uh, and give it a go with someone else. So, yeah, there is there is highs and lows. You know, when... When everything's going great and you're you're bringing a nice wage packet back every month, the, the world is a great place. But it can be really tough when you're missing cuts after cuts after cuts, and you know struggling to pay your mortgage every month. So, uh, so yeah. But you know that's part of the job. It's, it's almost a gamble for a caddy to to take a player because if your player doesn't make the cut, you don't make any money. So that is the gamble that we have to take, and we know that when we go into the job. So um, yeah, that's just the way it is. So obviously you said there you, you you send out some speculative emails to managers and you know I'm available you yeah. know so yeah. but what's the process if a player becomes available do you apply like you would a uh, any other job I guess absolutely yeah yeah so if if you hear and between our caddy group WhatsApps and stuff that we've got we pretty much hear straight away that there's a job going um, so if you haven't got the the uh, guy's number you'll pretty much be able to get it off someone uh, and then you just send them a nice message and say look you know sorry to hear about your, your previous relationship with whichever caddy but you know I'm available would love to team up and give it a shot with you and you know and if you're fortunate enough he'll take you on so it's just the way it is really there's no contract in a caddy's job so this is the the difficult part we have um, we can't sign a six-month agreement with someone or a 12-month contract with someone because there's no contracts in the caddy player agreement. So your player could get fed up after you after the nine holes of the first round and say, right, I've had enough of you go, I'll carry my own bag in. And that, that, that could be it, you know, so that's just the way it is. And, and vice versa. 
That's really interesting. So, so when Rory, sorry to put you on the spot here, but when Rory and JP split up, did you fire your CV yeah. off them? Yeah, me and 150 other caddies. Yeah. Is that the one you like? Yeah. The, I mean, it, if you if you can drop on, I mean, for me personally, if, if you can get a, a top 50 in the world bag, or or even top 75 in the world bag, that's got a card in America you are pretty much made as a caddy because you're playing for four times the amount of money what we're playing for uh, where we are. Um, you know, he's obviously got something about him to be top 75 in the world and there's potential that he's going to win a tournament and move move up the rankings and get into that top 50. Um, you know, and then, and also then what you've got to remember is if you're working for one of those players, you're in the same groups as the other top 75 in the world players. So you're getting then recognised from your likes of Rory or your Henrik Stenson's or your yeah. Justin Roses because you've been in that that environment, you've played in those groups. So they might like something that you've done in a round or over the course of a few rounds when you've been out with them. And they, that might be in the back of their mind. So if they hear that I'm available or someone's available, they might think, well, you know, I'm coming to an end with this caddy. I'm going to get rid of him because I want to take him on. And, and that's how it works, really. So... And you always tend to see that the top 50 in the world caddies sort of go from a top 50 in the world player to a top 50 in the world player. They don't seem to drop out of that that um, network of, of good caddies, if you like. So not saying that we're not good caddies, but you just need that break to get into that top 50, you know. And if you do and you do a good job and you, you, know, you have the results with your player, then you'll pretty much stay there, I think. You said something really interesting there. Now, obviously, a lot of players... Um, play on the European Tour regularly and, and then they will try and get their PGA Tour card and a lot of them will just flat out say like my dream is to play on the PGA Tour and a lot of young golfers yeah. say that. Is that the same for caddies? Yeah, for me, I mean, a lot a lot of caddies like it just in Europe. They don't they don't want to travel over to America and, and be out there for three or four weeks at a time and then have to travel back. Um, they like going, going home in between tournaments uh, on a Sunday night and being back out on a Tuesday morning because they live close to the tournament in, in where we are in Europe. Um, but for me, I, I would I would love the chance to to go and work a full you know a full card on the on the on the American tour because I know that you know you if you're out there you are going to get a decent job um, on the PGA tour and and probably do okay. So I mean the European tour is great. Don't get me wrong. And if you get a good bag on the European tour, you're probably going to play a few events in America anyway. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I, I'd jump at the chance to get in America for for a few seasons for sure. Yeah. If I could offer you any player in the world right now for the next five years, you're going to be on that player's bag for five years, nothing's happening to split you two up. Who do you choose? Oh, that is a really, really good question. Wow. I mean, you're going to say someone like Dustin or John Ra, aren't you? Because they're making millions every year. Um, but do you know what? I think someone like Rob McIntyre coming through the ranks, young kid, he's just got into the top 50 in the world. Um He's a really good player. I've watched watched him come through, um, and he's got a good caddy on the bag. Mike Mike's just started with him. Um, Mike was a little bit like me, if you like. He's 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 had a, a couple of good bags, but he's never had the top fifty in the world bag. And you know, a few weeks into starting with Rob, he wins in uh, in Cyprus, and uh, and they've been doing really well together ever since. So now they're I'm pretty sure they're in the Masters now, uh, which I think will be a first for Mike going into that. So. So yeah, so anything, any sort of player like coming through the ranks, getting into that top fifty is a good, is a good challenge to have because you, you can see, um, you can see yourself getting a chance of a job with those. But someone like Dustin and and John Rahm, they're going to keep their caddies for, well, for as long as you, you can remember, really. Because and you're going to be, be cutting at every single major for the next five years as well. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I can't see how they would, unless something went really wrong and they had a massive fallout and and that was that, you know, I, I can't see how their relationship would break up because they're always in the top 10 of the world and they're, you know, and they're doing really well and winning tournaments and making loads of cash out and, and titles and stuff. So, um, yeah, getting getting someone around 50th in the world and, and staying out there with them would be a, would be a nice touch, I think. Now, back to your career, you spent six years with David Hull, which is... Eight years. Eight years, sorry. A hell of a long time for a, for a player-caddy relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we had six years of, of full-time, if you like, where we didn't split up. And then we had uh, the last two years where we've sort of gone back and then come back and stuff. So, um, 
but yeah, I mean, it was it was great. Again, I was I was out of a job at the time. I was sitting here like I'm talking to you now, and it was Christmas, and I never forget. I was I was at the local uh, football club, and my grand and granddad had just come back from being wherever I'd been, and and I took him for lunch, and the phone rang, and it was David Al, and I knew I knew Dave, but not as if to you know the, to pick the phone up and speak to him, and sure. you know I'd say hello to him on tour and stuff, but that was it. And I'd just been to tour school a few weeks before with Richard Bland. Now, um, Richard had already got a caddy sorted if he got his card. So I went to tour school with Richard and we finished fourth and he obviously got his card. So that was brilliant. Um, but that meant that I still wasn't, I still hadn't got a job. But I think if if Richard hadn't got a caddy already lined up, I'd probably maybe have got off of the job there and gone into working for Richard for a, a year but Richard and Howler are good, really good friends and, and, and Blandy always teases me still now that he got me uh, to where I am in my career um, because he got me the job with Howler and you know me and Howler had a couple of wins and stuff so it was uh, it was nice but yeah I had this phone call off Dave saying um, just spoke to Rich and he says that you're looking for a job um, would you be interested in coming to work for me and I'm like yeah great you know David Howler that's, a, that's a, a world name he was world number nine at one point he's played a couple of Ryder Cups, won six times on tour. So for me, that was a really good good one to have under the belt. And we hit it off pretty much straight away. You know, we were we were great. We, we you know, we were, got the same kind of sense of humour, um, you know, and we got on brilliantly. And that's why we've lasted so long. And and he's been fantastic to me over, over the years. You know, he's helped me out no end. And um, yeah, we've become more of a, a friendship rather than a, a golf partnership, if you like. And that's why it's so difficult to to see him struggle, you know, because I'd like to be that person that to see him do well again and, and be the person walking up the 18th on the Sunday, you know, with a, having a chance of winning again. So, What was that, that emotional week at the Dunhill links? Um, we've all seen the footage of you bawling your eyes out on the 18th. Yeah. Group. But yeah, where, does still, that, where does that rank in your, your favorite weeks of your career? It's, it's, it's number one. Um, yeah. For me, it, that was the biggest week of the year. Um, it, it was a, it was funny how it all worked out because on the on the Tuesday driving to Carnoustie, I got Howler in the car with me, and I said, you know, come on this week, you're playing well. Let's this win. You turn my life around if you win this week. You know, it's sixty odd thousand quid for the caddy if you win, and you know you could you could do it this week. You, you're playing great. Come on, let's let's have a good week. And uh, sure enough, you you stand there in the locker room on Sunday afternoon saying, well, I've just changed your, your life, like you told, you know, like you said, and it. You know, it's amazing. Uh, but, you know, we played with Hugh Grant as, a, as our amateur for the... We'd sort of played with him a few years before, so we got to know him quite well. And he was a, he's a, he's a really good guy. Um, I still get the odd text off him now, just, you know, if we've had a good week or something, he'll, he'll see how we are and that. But, yeah, really, really nice chap. And he was good as gold as an amateur, knew when to come in and say something and knew when to keep out of the way, where... You know, the other amateurs in the in previous years have, have not been able to sort of do that. So, um, so yeah, Hugh was Hugh was brilliant, and you know, we we win the playoff and we're on the 18th green, and I'm unscrewing the flag because you uh, you keep the flag, and I you can see the Dunhill one there. So there's a Dunhill one up this uh, yeah, top absolutely. corner. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I unscrew the the flag on the 18th. Uh, and that you know that's what you keep and keep as a bit of a memorabilia and, and the bib. And as I'm doing that, Howler's walked off and all the cameras are on Dave and he's waving at the crowd. But then out of nowhere, Hugh has stayed and watched the playoff and made a beeline for me and just come and give me a massive hug on the 18th green. So all of a sudden, the cameras are now following <laughs> you. And I'm, like, and I'm like just a blarted mess, you know. And I, I still get stick for it now, but you know the, the amount of pictures I had sent me that night saying, you know. Congratulations, but what you're crying for, you just won 60 odd grand. Well, it was just emotion, really. It was like the build up and the, you know, the pressure of going into a playoff and shooting 63 on the Saturday. Everything had just sort of, you know, had built up to that one last put on the 18th. And um, and he, he rolled it in, and that was that. It was just like, wow, we've done it, kind of thing. Yeah, pretty amazing. So it must be quite strange because you you've obviously spent your entire career mixing with some of the like global superstars in golf, yeah. and then suddenly you've got a week where you're spending or playing golf with a global superstar in in everything in Hugh yeah. Grant. Yeah, yeah, it was quite amazing because at first I was sort of a bit quiet and a bit sort of shy, but then 
I realised we were on the same kind of wave, sense of humour wise. We had a little bit of a laugh and a joke, and we told a few stories. And before you know it, we sort of hit it off. And and then I was helping him on the way around as well with his with his game. He, he got a local caddy on the bag, but you know, I was saying right, this is where the wind's playing. You know, this is you know how far do you at this? This is for the club, and and it was sort of we got on really well then. And uh, I never forget on the on the Friday night, um, he was going for a curry, and uh, he'd invited Howler to go for a curry. And um, and Howler had, had, had declined, and said, "You know, I'm going to have an early night." And he, he'd said to me, uh, "He said to Howler, oh, can you can you text me Rose number if he wants to come and join us?" So sure enough, I get this text message from Hugh Grant. Would you like to come for an Indian uh, with us tonight? It's a wind up, and I'm like, "Who's this? Someone to wind up?" <laughs> Hugh Grant doesn't text a golf caddy to come for an Indian restaurant at St Andrews. So I said, "Yeah, love to. What time? Ha ha." He said, okay, see you at the Jigger at seven. And then Howler rings me, oh, Hugh's going to text you in a bit to go for an Indian. And I'm like, oh my God, that is Hugh Grant. And I've just put ha-ha after the message. <laughs> so I said, oh, that'd be lovely. Thanks ever so much. Look, look forward to seeing you. So sure enough, we go off and I couldn't spend a penny. They, them lads were having a, a nice old drink and I was I was being professional and on the water, but we had a, a lovely meal and he told us a few unbelievable stories, which... I'll keep to myself, and uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was brilliant. And again, you know, I, I, I sat in my local boozer just before lockdown, actually, and one of the young lads is working Charlie behind the bar, and my phone starts ringing, and he come and he he happened to be cleaning the bar at the time, and he just looked, and Hugh Grant was ringing me. He went, "Who do you know called Hugh Grant?" I said, "Hugh Grant." I went, "Hi, you," and then we were just having a chat about the previous week, and my missus was standing uh, standing next to me and he says, yeah, he's, he's Hugh Grant. He's, they, they met at a golf. And then this young 18-year-old bar lad was like, he's talking to Hugh Grant in my pub. This is like, it's surreal. Um, so, yeah, so it is. And I suppose I just sort of take it for granted now. You know, if I get a message off, my, I just take it for granted. Um, but, yeah, he is, you know, when a film comes on, oh, yeah, play golf with him. You know, we've, we've been out for an Indian meal together. You know, it's... It is very still, you know, still pinch yourself kind of moment. But but yeah, he's, he's he's as you see him in the films. That's how he is in real life. He's just uh, he's just a really nice, normal guy. I love that. Does does winning at St Andrews add to the like the magic of the win? Is there is there a better yeah. place to win than there? Uh, I mean, apart from the Open Championship at St Andrews, I don't think there's a biggest tournament you could win at St Andrews. Um, than the Dunhill links and you know and and it's the home of golf and to be there having your photos on the Swalcombe Bridge and you know and on the 18th green with a trophy in your hand you sort of know you've sort of done something right in your career and you've you, you know you've you've done something well uh, and to have the you know the you know the pictures up behind me and the you know the pictures with Hugh as well coming off the 18th green you know again it's something you, you show the kids and they you know they see um you know Paddington on the TV and they see Hugh Grant there and there's me with a photo in the man cave you know it's yeah it's, it is really nice that's really good so what what has changed in, in in terms of your career what's changed about caddying the most on the Europe or certainly on the European tour in the last 15-20 years I think going back to the yardage books um, makes caddying a lot easier. So for someone coming out like a Harry Diamond, for example, or a brother or a girlfriend, it is quite simple to read a yardage book now. Um, might take you a couple of days to get used to it, but where before we was having a bit of paper with a map drawn out with two or three yardages. So on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, our job was a lot harder. We were doing a lot more work, making a lot more notes. Um, so I think that is... Uh, and, and us caddies try and try and minimise the books we will try and advise to not put so much info into the books because we still want to do our bit but some weeks we get all this information you think to yourself well why am I here you know you don't really apart from being a, a mate and a bit of a psychologist to you know get you back up when you're down or keep you up when you're up kind of thing the, the numbers and everything else is it's pretty simple for a player or, or someone that don't really know anything about golf to understand. So that, that would be the biggest change for me is the yardage books have just uh, got bigger and better and more information. And, and that's, that's why you'll see more friends and family coming out of caddying. 
And of course, you've got the Caddy Union now. Is that yeah. exactly you started? Yeah, it's been brilliant. Yeah, the Caddy Association, um, you know, he's done it. And we've just started a, a social media uh, called Caddy World, at Caddy World. So um, I've been doing a bit to help out with that, just doing a few videos. We do a, a, like a whole of the week uh, every tournament. So we describe how we think the player is going to play that whole um, what the trouble will be, um, you know, especially if it's the 18th and they might be have a one-shot lead or someone's trying to challenge for the lead. Um, so we do stories about that. We do giveaways, winners yardage books signed at the end of a, uh, a week. Um, me and Jamie just did one, actually. My, my wingman, Jamie Herbert, who's been has had a brilliant year for Laurie Cantor. Um, we did. Uh, we managed. We was allowed to play the uh, the Royal Greens Golf Course the day after the Saudi Invitational. So we went out, and I'd I'd already took my clubs out with me because we we played a bit of golf with Dave uh, the week before uh, Abu Dhabi. So I had my clubs with me. Um, so we was allowed to go and play the course there, and uh, we did a, a vlog of the back nine. And there's a lot of uh, mick taking. There's a lot of good swings, but there's awful, <laughs> awful swings as well. Um, but it really puts it in perspective how tough the golf course plays when you play it as, you know, I'm a decent handicapper, I play off plus four. Jamie's a pro, who's a, you know, he's a scratch golfer. But, you know, we were three and six over for nine holes around there. You know, it, it makes you really appreciate how good these lads are because it's all right watching it from, you know, close up and with the bag on the back. But when you actually try and play these golf courses yourself, I mean, I played in Dubai off the back tees where, where we played the race to Dubai at JGE. I, honestly, I felt beat up after the round. I'd shot, I'd shot 78, six over par, and played pretty good. But every second shot, well, most second shots into par fours was either a really long iron or a three-wood. You know, and I just felt beat up at the end of it. And then, you know, you look back at the results and Matt Fitzpatrick's winning with 18 under par. And you think, you know, and I'm plus four. If I was a member around there, I'd be a six handicapper seven handicapper you know it's it's amazing so you do tend to appreciate uh, these courses a bit more when you actually get to play them so you just mentioned there about watching these guys close up i mean apart from sevi who you've already talked about is there anyone that you've watched that's really just blown you away and you've just thought oh my god well, i mean I, I was lucky enough to um in dubai to watch the tiger clinic on the range and obviously being a caddy and having your pass I was, I was standing 10 metres away uh, along with another uh, load of caddies watching him. And it would come to the point where he just in the transition of putting a five wood over a two iron in the bag. And he was, he was talking about this five wood and he said, you know, two iron always used to be the go-to club uh, laying up on par fives or, you know, if I got 250, you know, and, and could go for a par five in two or, or laying up on a par four, this two iron was the club. And you always, you, we all know the tiger would stinger that he hits as well, you know. So we stood on this range and he's hit, this, he's hit three five woods. He said, I'm going to hit a, a high cut, a high draw, and then a low five wood. And I'm, God strike me, Dran, now, you could have laid a picnic blanket over these three shots. The best hour of golf I've ever seen witnessed in my life, where whatever shot he called, whatever shot he decided to do, he did it and it looked with ease. And the one thing that always sticks in my mind when he was hitting driver, when you watch the ball go off, like I watch, I watched Bryson this week in, in Saudi watching him and it, it's, the ball is coming off so fast off the club. You've got to be on your ball to keep an eye on it through the air and it's coming off like this and it's going miles and miles and miles. But with Tiger, the ball come off, but in the air, as it was going up, the ball looked like it was trying to go again. It wasn't like a, a smooth flight. It was like a hit, 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 hit. It was like a jagged flight, as though the ball was trying to go further. And it was something that I've never, ever seen in any other golfer. And it was the most impressive hour that I've ever seen a, a, a person do. And that's why, I mean, there was a stat out last week come out that Rory's just made his 26th cut on the, on the PGA Tour. And if he's to beat Tiger's record, he can't miss another cut until the end of 2028. I mean, and that's just that's just how good the guy is, you know. So, so yeah, amazing. And that there, I know, and I witnessed that ten meters away and watched it for an hour, and it was just incredible. When you're just just staying with Tiger, I mean, he only plays like what 10, 12 times a year, which yeah, 15, yeah. exactly it's not a lot of work for his 
Paddy Joe LaCarver. I mean, are you looking at Joe and thinking, God, that's a dream, working two months a year and earning yeah. millions of the greatest yeah. players on the earth? Of course I am. I mean, I mean, I'm sure when Joe uh, was sitting on his backside for two or three years on and off, you know, why Tiger was injured, obviously Tiger's going to look after him to for, for Joe to stick with him. Sure. Um, but, you know, what, what a great... What a great career to have that would be, just or you know, a job just to say, I'm going away 15 weeks this year. I'm probably going to make myself a million quid uh, within, you know, with everything with endorsements and and on on course earnings and and stuff like this. He's never going to play for a pay for a flight again. He's never going to pay for a hotel room again. You know, so the guy's got it made and fair play to him. You know, he's a brilliant caddy, and and that's why one of the best, well, the best of all time in my eyes would would have someone like that on the back. So. So just in that sort of situation, do you think Tiger's saying to him, I don't want you to go and work for anyone else in case I don't get you back? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, if if you as as a, you know, if you get injured and you're out having an operation for six, 12 months, if you want to keep that caddy and he, he's and you know, you want him to be loyal to you, I don't think the caddy will be sitting around at home waiting for you to come back when there might be another player that wants you to go and caddy for him for six months. Um, because if again, if you do do and go and caddy for some, someone for that time and you do well, you might not want to go back. You might enjoy it more and you might not want to go back. So for Tiger to to keep Joe on, he would have been looking after him. I'm, I'm 99.9% sure of that. Um, but, fair, you know, why wouldn't you? You know, if you want what you think is the best person for you, why wouldn't you do that? You know, it's not like he's struggling for a few quid. Absolutely. Um, I need to ask you this, and I apologise because you've probably been asked a thousand times in the last two years, but what did you make as a caddy? What did you make of that Matt Kuchar incident when he, for, for people that don't know, he obviously, he played in the Mayakoba. They agreed, he, t- he took a local caddy down there. He um, agreed to pay him, I think $5,000 was the number yeah. that was, was touted. Yeah. And then of course he won. So there was like $1.2 million prize or whatever. Um, yeah. And then there was obviously this famous incident where he didn't give him any kind of bonus and the press got hold of it and it all blew up. Like from a caddy's perspective, what were you thinking? Well, you just knocked it on the head when you mentioned press there. Now, as I said earlier, there's no contracts in caddying. Matt Cooch has gone to Mexico with no full-time caddy. His, his caddy either couldn't get into the country visa-wise or something happened, so he couldn't go. Mm-hmm. So Matt thought, you know what? I'll pay a local guy. $5,000 for a week's work for that guy would have been huge, right? More than his monthly salary, probably. So that if you'd have asked him at the start of the week and you'd done an interview, the press had got on him at the start of the week, he would have been, oh, Matt, Matt Cooch is this. He's, he's the best thing, thing in sliced bread. He's paid me $5,000. I could feed my family. I could do this, I could do that. He'd have been over the moon. Now, for me, when Matt won... It would have been nice for Matt just to say, do you know what? There's your, whether it was 5%, whether it was a normal 10%, whatever he, you know, he's just made a million quid and he's a millionaire. He could, if he'd, if he'd got anything about him, he should have just said, there you go. Now, the press have obviously interviewed this local and said, oh, how much did you get paid for winning? And he's gone $5,000. Now, the press have said, right, you give us our story you're going to make a lot more than that. We're going to pay you this because this is, and you're going to make the guy look terrible. In the end, I believe the figure was 50 grand or something like that, that he ended up paying him, which again is a lifetime amount of money for this guy. But I think the, the press have just made, made it a lot worse than what it could have been. But then in my, in my eyes, Matt should have done the right thing and just said, look, here's a nice, bonus thanks ever so much you know we've just won the tournament um but doing it after you've already got that bad name see so Perfect. right i'm gonna let you go but first tell me about tour experience your your side bit i mean you, you tell me you're unemployed but you've got this wonderful <laughs> side business going on oh yeah I'm, I'm unemployed in my normal job but um my side business is called the tour experience and three years ago um We've got a few months off over Christmas and New Year before we're back to work. And I'm I'm one of these that can't sit at home, watch daytime TV. I need to be active and doing something. So I thought, well, what can I do? So what am I good at? What do I do? I, I caddy, right. So I wrote to uh, an email to my local club at Newark in Nottinghamshire and said, look, I've had this idea. Um, can I advertise course management lessons at, at our club? It's not teaching a swing because we're not all pro 
pro caddies, uh, pro golfers. Um, but it would just taking you know the everyday golfer out onto the golf course and giving them a course management lesson, showing them how to get around the golf course better. Basically, what we do with our pros on a on an everyday basis. So they they agreed and said yeah. And I said you know if I get any anyone from outside, I'll bring a green fee in and you get a green fee off the back of it and stuff. Anyway. I was just inundated straight away. The phone never stopped. The emails kept coming through, not only from members, but from people that saw it on social media. So I thought this, this is not a bad idea. So in the January, I went out to Abu Dhabi, rounded up 20 good caddies that I, that I could trust and know that would do a good job and said, look, this is my idea. I've just built this website. Would you be interested in coming on board? Because obviously I couldn't do it without these caddies being sure. on board, I could do it as a one-man band, but, you know, it's better to have the, the country covered, if you like. So they all agreed. They all told me what they wanted to be paid. I take a little bit of commission on top of that. And that was three years ago. And now we've got um, 44 caddies all over the world. So South Africa, uh, Belgium, Germany, Scotland, UK, so on and so forth. I've now um, changed the business from tour caddy experience to the tour experience. So now you can hire a European tour player um so we've got the likes of andy beef johnson ollie wilson david horsey amy bolden peter baker you know we've got um no end of really good players that again i've got a load of good stories that will take you around a golf course and have a game of golf with you um and we've got three coaches and uh and a physio as well all tour based so um yeah the the it over christmas and new year even though we haven't been able to play golf we've sold no end of Christmas vouchers. So when we do get back up and running and we are allowed to go back out on the golf course, we, we are going to be pretty busy. So, which is great for me, you know, and, uh, and that's where I can see my retirement being, you know, when I'm too old to be carrying a 20 kilo bag around a golf course and traveling all over the world, it'd be nice to have that as a bit of a retirement plan and, and do a bit, um, you know, when I'm at home. So, so yeah, so that's, that's took off brilliantly. And, you know, and, Everyone that's been and had a, a, you know, whether it's been a caddy or a player, as you know, I send them a, a, um, a testimonial form at the end of each day and everyone has, has come back saying what a great experience I've had. The caddy, the player, the coach, anyone was, you know, has done a brilliant job. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. And, and that's why it's been really good. Yeah. So we're just trying to build that up. We keep trying to get it out, word of mouth, social media. Um, you know, we've got a, a YouTube channel. We're on every social media site. So, um, so yeah, come and have a look at us. And uh, if you're interested, uh, pick the phone up. You know, you'll speak to me. Um, I'm the one that takes all the bookings. So uh, either send us an email and give us a call and we'll fix you up with, uh, you know, one of the best caddies in the world. We've got major winners, Ryder Cup caddies. Um, you know, we've got multiple winners of, of golfers. So, and, and you know, top club coaches and physios. So. Presumably, the, so if I wanted, for example, to play around with Martin Gray and pick his brains about Seve and Alaka and Jimenez and things, I go to where he's based, do I, to his golf course? Well, yeah, I mean, what, what we try and do um, is pick a caddy that's closest to you. Um, so if, if a caddy is in Scotland and you live in Lincolnshire, then that's going to be quite difficult to get a caddy to come and caddy for you there. Um, and they're not sure the caddy would want to travel all that far, all that way for a couple hundred quid for, for a lesson. Um, but yeah, Martin Gray, 20 minutes up the road, you you know, he could come to you and he, he would spend the day with you, uh, you know, and, and, and caddies like Martin have got unbelievable stories with Seve, you know, with Masters, with Ryder Cups, you know. Um, you know, he's done it all. And, and, and he's just one of many that we've got that have got all these experiences and, and stories that will... Uh, you know, that you'll listen to on the way around and, and we encourage it, you know, we encourage you ask as many questions as you want, you know, and I'm sure each and every question that someone would ask us, we've got a story uh, behind it all. So, so yeah, and that's why a lot of it, it we're the sort of the middleman of the, the big, big names of the tour. So we, you know, we, we sort of absorb all this information and then give it out to the people that can't get it. And, and luckily my business is the only one of its kind at the minute, you know, no other, uh, player or caddy has set a business up like this so so yeah so to have a, a European tour uh, person if you like come and help you with your game uh, yeah I'm the man to come and see so if I want to get these uh, stories from Hugh Grant out of you I have to come and pay for them is that what you're saying absolutely yeah and you'll have to sign a contract as well <laughs>
So just uh, the website, that's thetourexperience.golf. Yes. Right. Yeah, we're on uh, every social media. At TourXGolf is my uh, Twitter. And then the Tour Experience on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, but if you go onto the website, yeah, um, the tourexperience.golf, all my uh, YouTube channel and social media is on that. And you'll see all the caddies, players, and everyone that's on there um, pretty much tells you everything we do. So we do corporate days, we do one on one sessions, uh, we do after dinner talks. Um, yeah, we've got it all covered. So brilliant. All right, Steve, I really appreciate you talking to me. I'm going to. Uh... <laughs> let you get off because uh, we've I've had an hour or two with you and it's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks a lot, mate. Appreciate it. Perfect, mate. Good to speak to you.